Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to be with you. We skipped a week, and it's going to be exciting to talk about our Binge the Bible series. I'm joined by Bill Mayer today. Welcome back. We missed you last week. And this uh, this episode's coming to you late because um, my car broke down. And then while I was driving my wife's car, her car broke down. And so we had two busted cars. And so we weren't able to record at our typical time. But we're getting this episode out to you a little bit late. But we're glad to be able to continue the conversation. So if you are just joining us, uh, since January, we have been reading the Bible in six months and have an accompanying sermon series entitled Binge the Bible, where we are taking something from the sections that we've read through that week and, um, and drilling down on it. So this past week, uh, we went to Daniel chapter 3, and the sermon title was Faith in the Fire. So some of what we say today on the podcast won't make perfect sense if you didn't listen to that sermon or you weren't there on Sunday. But we are talking about the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and relating that to our increasingly uh, contentious and oppositional society. We're experiencing a culture shift that's happening at a speed faster than um, previous decades. And with that, there's um, obviously voices on both sides of that shift and that are becoming more contentious. And there's a division that's taking place where people of a certain persuasion are more aligning with the uh, ideology of the left or the right, um, progressive or conservative. Obviously, that is a political dimension, in which case you'd be on the Democrat or Republican side or independent in the middle. And I talked about this a little bit on Sunday without the political element. Uh, I was more talking about the cultural pressure um, and the heat that comes from being leveraged against. And so in my adult lifetime, I've experienced this um, shift, uh, this leverage shift where the, the culture is pushing us against our own convictions through this kind of four-part phasing of toleration, acceptance, celebration, participation. And I talked about this uh, categorically on Sunday but I didn't use like a real-time example. Uh, I think people who knew what I was talking about were connecting to the idea, but there were some who looked a little confused. And um, I didn't use a real-time example because the examples tend to become immediately polarizing. And so like, for instance, if, if you care enough to listen to this podcast and you're deep diving a little bit more with us, now you're in a, a frame of mind to consider this more deeply and less uh, immediately emotionally. And because we're trying to reach a broad audience of people who are coming from various directions and because they bring with them ideologies and convictions in their journey towards Jesus that aren't maybe the standard or the typical, um, I was compelled to be a little vague. I think everybody knew what I was talking about, but but still, let's, let's apply this to a specific topic. So let's use the abortion topic, for instance. So um, in the 60s and 70s, um, abortion was a live topic. It was illegal in the United States to uh, abort an unborn child um, with exception. And those exceptions uh, were made for medical reasons, for the life of the mother, for the risk of the life to the mother, or the viability of the infant. And that decision was left only to a doctor, not to a patient. And so a woman could want to have an abortion, um, but unless the doctor ruled that her condition was life-threatening, or that the condition of the infant um, was, um, say, terminal, or shortly thereafter, um, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't give the abortion. So you can imagine in a scenario like this, where at the time, 99% of medical professionals in the, in the surgeon role were male, making a decision for people who are 100% of the time female had a dimension that quickly connected itself to the women's liberation movement and the throwing off of some of the old baggage of uh, traditionalism or patriarchy. And so this obviously left a bad taste in the mouths of many women. And so abortion uh, as a legal, political, cultural um, topic has been inextricably entwined in feminism 
in our era. Now, this is not the case in other parts of the world because they didn't have the same situation we had and didn't develop at the same time the way that it has here in the United States. But if you read the way the Roe v. Wade judgment is written, the outcome, the position piece, you'll see that it is all about feminism. It is all about a woman's right versus a man's right and a doctor's right and so on and so forth. And so in the in the Constitution, uh, they found, you know, I don't even remember how they worded it, the um, penumdrums, I think is the word they use, of the Constitution of the 14th Amendment, right to privacy. This is kind of like something that a woman had a constitutional right to because it's none of anybody else's business, and therefore it wasn't a man's decision, particularly a man who was not related to her, and so if this became a woman's right to choose. And it had more to do with feminism and um, uh, sexism than it did the actual issue of abortion, right? So at the time... I'd say the majority, and I'm speaking in generalities instead of statistics, we could look this up, but I would say it's reliable to consider that at the time, the majority of the culture considered abortion to be a bad thing, a, a um, in and of itself an evil that was sometimes uh, allowable based on the circumstances. And so most people thought, listen, if mom's going to die then you have to make a judgment about the value of a life, a life with uh, other dependents, a life already in progress, or a life um, un- unborn. And so there's a value judgment about which life is more valuable. Um, if baby's going to die, then you're talking about the quality of life, the length of life, and should you just mercifully end that life. Um, and then if you're talking about, quickly this became mental health, health. So this woman is so distraught by her unwanted pregnancy you know, she cheated on her husband and now she's pregnant with another man's baby. And if her husband finds out, her life is over and she's in mental anguish. And so this is not really about her physical well being, it's about her mental well being because she could potentially take her own life. And so you can see how this thing starts to be a slippery slope of justification for this particular practice. And then when it's tied into this dynamic of men and women, you can kind of see how this developed. But I say all this to say that the cultural position at the time was that abortion is an inherent evil and is sometimes necessary, and so it should be allowed, and then who should be in control of it? It should not be a, a, a board of male doctors who are reviewing a case when this is the life of a woman that we're talking about. And so that's really where the judgment emphasis came down on. But of course, what happens is when the world begins to tolerate an evil and expand upon that evil, then the, the, the cultural shift moves towards acceptance. And so you end up with those on the progressive left saying like abortion is tolerated. And now that it's tolerated, now we're saying it's not even necessarily a bad thing. We're actually saying that this is a, like, this is a, a thing for, for women to actually kind of like this sets them free in a way because the male of the species um, impregnates a woman and he has zero r- responsibilities in many cases potentially legally and financially, but many times you can just walk away from this scenario. And so it's a, it's a major inequality that, that's present there. And so um, for those who moved away, culturally, the shift became like abortion is an inherent evil to in- abortion is actually a procedure. Of course, it becomes very um, dehumanized, a procedure. Um, the woman, her humanity is kept intact, but the humanity of the, the fetus or embryo or baby is not is not focused on. Obviously, you have to do some some mental gymnastics there, um, but that that is actually seen as like a procedure that liberates a woman. So now she is as sexually free as her male counterpart. So there's an equality that springs up. So now, and obviously, this is happening during the sexual revolution when the confines of cultural marriage and uh, fidelity in marriage and monogamy. Uh, as like a value is slipping as well. And so there's, you know, all kinds of free love and sex and men are, are, are experiencing an unequal experience in, in results to pregnancy. And so now abortion is now becoming more and more widely accepted. And so people are saying, okay, abortion was an, uh, was a evil we were tolerating. And now it's a part of the life we live. And there's more and more and more and more scenarios in which this is actually an inherent good. A woman who doesn't want to be pregnant because she had a sexual encounter with a man that she doesn't know and he has no responsibility and now she's bearing the responsibility. Should we cut her life short? Should we alter her life because of this you know, mistake or experience or however you want to say it? 
obviously the terminology changes as we move down this trajectory. And so there's more and more wide acceptance. And so you start to think about, okay, well, here's a family and they have four children and their youngest is 13 and their oldest is in college and they didn't think they were able to have any more children. And now suddenly mom's pregnant in her forties. Um, and so now this is a, a boarding the child is more culturally acceptable. Now people are, there's still a lot of shame. There's a lot of guilt. There's a lot of hiding. There's, a, there's obviously, obviously options about having the baby and giving the baby up for adoption, but abortion is private and it's quiet. And, um, and so culturally it becomes far more accepted. And even today, I'd say even in the Christian world, um, while people still kind of like politically and positionally would say that abortion is bad or wrong or should be illegal, oftentimes even Christians will caveat that with in some circumstances. And if you look at their choices, because they vote to keep it legal, it, it kind of sends this message that abortion is evil, except in the cases of you know incest and um, the risk to the mother, baby, and maybe also my situation. And so I want to keep that door open just in case I need it. Um, and so we don't talk about that. And that that involves men and women. This is not just a this is not just a, a um, cisgender white male picking on women in this podcast. I'm saying um, this is something that affects um, fathers, mothers. Um, people of all of all kinds in all situations. The point here is that this shift, this cultural shift, moves from toleration to acceptance, and then you get to the celebration phase. And we're we have that we're in that phase now around abortion. I mean, um, shout your abortion. This there's these protests where these women are like literally saying, "My abortion was the best decision I ever made." Like this is like what set me free. This is what allowed me to 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 do me. And and so like the the value system went from being life is better than death to one life is worth more than another life to my lifestyle is worth more than your life. And so this shift to celebration. And so we're all, there's always people in the category behind the current um, category. So here we are in this celebration period where there's people to the right saying, okay, we th- this is terrible that you would celebrate this, but they've accepted it and many people have voted in ways that keep it intact legally. And so there's an acceptance that's to the right of celebration. And there's still to the right of that group of people who are tolerating it. Um, and so obviously there's many more dimensions in here. There's personal dimensions about should you get an abortion or not your decision. There's dimensions in here about politics and what side of the aisle are you on with as it pertains to women's rights. And you have to unentwine abortion for women's rights. And then there's the legality of it. And then there's the federal government versus the state governments. There's all these layers that we could talk about about this particular topic that are related but distinct. I'm talking about the cultural mood that has moved from the toleration of something evil as necessary to the acceptance of something evil as normal to the celebration of that same thing as being uh, the the procedure that gives both equality and liberation. It's a, it's a good thing. And so there's always going to be people on the other side of that going, no, I'm not going to celebrate this. But even as the celebration pushes, now we're going to enter into this this, this uh, realm of participation. And this largely happens through things like Planned Parenthood, tax-funded abortions for the, for the lowest-income people, where we are being forced by the cultural shift from evil to good to now not only tolerate and accept and celebrate, but to participate in. And maybe maybe sometimes participation uh, uh, is the antecedent to celebration. Maybe maybe it should be tolerate, accept, participate, celebrate. Uh, maybe maybe in some instances or on some topics those get flipped, where we end up participating in it before we end up celebrating in it. But um, this this would be a an illustration of the concept that I was trying to talk about um, on Sunday, the abortion issue. And so obviously that's a hot topic. And many people are going to have many responses, but it illustrates the movement, which is undeniable. You can't say that that what I just shared didn't happen. That's the way that it happened. And this is the way this happens on the broad scale. So we could talk about the same thing with gay marriage, right? So regardless of what your religion is or what your perception on homosexuality is as a practice, in the 90s, we had this specific question about can two people of the same sex get married and can they have the benefits, the legal tax corporate benefits of marriage in the way that men and women do? And so then you get back to that equality question. So if a heterosexual man and woman can experience all these benefits from being in a marriage, 
why can't homosexual man and man or woman and woman have those same benefits if they're in the same monogamous relationship and the only thing different is their gender and sexual orientation? So that became the question. Of course, the issue then becomes the definition of marriage, which has to be changed in order to accommodate this this new parameter, let's say. Because the reality is, is that there was no there was no legal inequality. Um, homosexual people had the right to marry someone of the opposite sex, and that was marriage. And as long as everyone had that right, just because you didn't want to participate in that right, doesn't mean you were denied that right. In order to in order to turn that into an inequality, you had to change the definition of the thing itself, and then say that I'm not allowed to have that thing. But that was never that was never the question that was on the table. So we watched this happen with the toleration. And then we watched the corporate entities, Home Depot and Target, and these different other companies starting to say, well, we're going to offer these benefits to same-sex partners, even though they're not married because they can't get married. And then, of course, the far farthest progressive states like Massachusetts and New York, California, they begin to actually change their state laws to allow for these things, and people are flocking to those places. Meanwhile, there's you know the, the issue with the, the baker that wouldn't make the cake for the gay couple in the Midwest, and that became a, a hot point of of this debate. And we watched as people began to go, you know what, let them do their thing, let them have their marriage, and they're living their quiet lives. And the depiction is always, you know, a monogamous homosexual couple, basically being exactly like a heterosexual married couple, you know, 30 years raising children, living in the home, they just want to be left alone, don't be mean to them. Um, And so that was like the presentation of this reality. Of course, we know clearly that homosexual relationships do not mirror heterosexual relationships. The, the, the number of relationships, the sexual activity, the monogamy is not there. It's very, very different, certainly with the male category. The female category with lesbianism is a little different. But for the most part, they're not, it's not a one-for-one. One. It's always kind of presented as this thing that's the same, but it's not the same. But obviously, we keep bringing this back to things like American values like equality and liberty and so the narrative then focuses on any time homosexual people are mistreated, where you know sometimes laws are actually broken and they're they're you know abused or maligned or whatever. I'm not saying any of those things are right. I'm just saying the narrative is moving us to tolerate this activity and then to accept it as normal. So it gets normalized. It gets normalized in entertainment. It gets normalized in television. It gets normalized in. Um, the culture you start to, we, we experience this all the time where I don't know how many commercials you see represent there's going to be a same sex couple in the commercial. You're going to see all these little things, little clips of things happening, and there's a same sex couple with their couple of kids on the couch, and they're just having this little happy life. And so that is a movement of that acceptance of that normalizing this thing. And then, of course, you get the gay pride movements, and now we're celebrating. And so now it's not only a thing that is, is tolerated and allowed, now it's normalized and accepted. And now it's a thing that has to be celebrated. And so now if you don't celebrate it, if you don't have the, the, you know, the, the gay pride rainbow, or if you don't go to the parades, the, you are seen as something evil, something prohibitive, restrictive, bigot, um, dehumanizing. Your silence is violence. Like all, all of this pressure starts to come down on those who are dissenting. And so you're not allowed to tolerate anymore. And it's not enough that you move to acceptance. Now you also have to go to the parade and support your gay friends and wave a flag. And to, do, to not do that is hate. Do you understand? And then you're going to get to the point where the pressure is on participation. How in the world could you stay in this, this binary, in this heterosexual, heteronormative misogyny? How could you mistreat people this way? Like, you're also a little gay. And if you aren't, if you aren't celebrating and if you aren't engaging in and participating in a culture that's portraying, I mean, the whole drag queen situation and, um, you know, these trans men dressing in women's bathing suits. And if you then object or if you say, oh, I'm not going to buy that product or I'm not going to have this streaming subscription. Now you are now you are the enemy. You are being cast as some far right extremist group when the reality is uh, the loudest voices are presenting a narrative, presenting a narrative that do not accurately depict the reality and percentage of who these people are and what is actually going on in our society. And so as the silent majority is dragged along through toleration, acceptance, celebration, and participation, the whole thing is being led astray by a very a very loud, vocal, pushy, aggressive minority group. And so this is how this whole thing has worked. I heard it explained this way, and this is the most helpful way that I've seen it. Imagine for a moment that 
your family of five, mom, dad, daughter, two sons, um, your daughter decides she wants to be a vegan. Okay. So she wants to be a vegan and it's more cult. It's more about, um, a conviction than it is a diet necessity. So she's a vegan. So now you decide you're going to tolerate her veganism. So, okay. She wants to be a vegan. We're going to put up with that. And so let's just have a different dinner for her. Right. So now you have dinner for the family and then you have your vegan option for the daughter and you're making that and it's a little inconvenient, but you're tolerating it. Right. Okay. Well now that's, that is like becoming a little prohibitive because you're having to cook two meals all the time. And so now you're finding yourself cooking more and more just vegan options for the whole family because it's just easier to make one meal than it is to make two. And so now everybody has accepted the veganism and is now experiencing this participation element. So in this instance, the participation precedes the celebration. Well, now let's say you guys are invited to a public barbecue and the neighborhood's doing a barbecue and well, we don't, we don't eat any meat in our house because our daughter's a vegan. And so nobody else is a vegan in the house, but we're eating vegan because she eats vegan. And now we all can't participate in the group barbecue unless you have a vegan option. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you guys come and we'll have some vegan option. And so now we have both happening on the grand scale. The same principle continues to play out until one person's veganism has persuaded the activity and behaviors of a whole group of people merely out of pressure and convenience. And if that person's pushy and if there's um, if there's attack on those who say, okay, well, you're in the minority, so you have to pack your own lunch and deal with it. Oh, that's evil. That's hatred. You don't accept me. Then the buckling starts to happen. And so before long, you all have to collectively say, no, we are doing this because it is better. So either you are being bullied and pushed around, or you are buying into the celebration motif and saying, this is the world we want to live in. It's, you start to have to like, find new reasons to justify your own behavior to yourself so that you don't feel bullied. And this is like a social contagion. Now you're going, oh, the vegan option is better. Now you're looking for all the reasons, you know, cow farts are contributing to global warming and now we are stopping this from happening. And so everything becomes, I don't know, there's not really a word for it, virtuized. So we're doing this thing and it's a celebratory thing. And so we have this pressure that moves from, a cult, moves a whole culture from toleration to acceptance to either celebration and then participation or participation and then celebration. So this is what I'm trying to say. Now, that's just a cultural reality. And we could just from a sociological standpoint, we could just say, oh, well, isn't that interesting? Except that as real world consequences, when we are people of faith living by conviction that is based in what we perceive as divine revelation. And now that is outside of the realm of this Overton window. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this term, but Overton window would be this concept of imagine a window over top of a timeline or some kind of long linear line and there's a section of it and so you have this little spectrum from the left side of the window to the right side of the window and in the center is what's normal and you to the to the left side maybe your kind of extreme right values you're very traditional very husband's the head of the home women don't work or wear pants and they do these traditional roles and this is, these are the only ways you can be, and there should be laws to prohibit people from being this ways. And then they move to the center, and there's a little bit more acceptance of variety and variation. And then to the, down to the right, you're going to see would be, would be the left view of like f- complete atomist, atomistic individualism, whatever you want, do whatever you want, be as free, no laws that prohibit you. And so what ends up happening is this process that I've just talked about over time, it it marginalizes that old conservative voice that holds the Overton window in place and it pushes it down the line slowly, which means your center is becoming increasingly left in our experience. Now, this can also go the other way. There's times of like religious enlightenment where there's drastic response to move the other direction and the Overton window moves into, uh, like in the Victorian era, for instance, we saw this go the other direction. You went from this like, in the Corinthian era, the post-Corinthian era, like the, this first Corinthians was written when there was wild sexual liberation from this, these pagan cultures and the Christian influence moved that window back over into this like um, what we would consider more conservative values arena. But we're existing in this time when this Overton window is being pushed more and more into the progressive. And so what the, one of the ways you'll see this is that people who used to be considered on the left, like Elon Musk, for instance, is now seeming centrist. Because the whole the whole culture has shifted. He stayed put, but the whole culture shifted over top of him. And now the traditionalists are outside of the margin of acceptable, and they are seen as dangerous extremists. And the new progressives are not just saying, 
um, women should have rights and we should, we should, uh, you know, allow homosexuals to be in long-term monogamous relationships. But now we're having drag queen story hour for children and targets having, you know, bathing suits for transgender kids so they can tuck their genitals in and not be seen, which in my opinion is nothing more than, um, child abuse. So children do not have the capacity to make these types of decisions. This is the influence of parents. But that is where the far progressive side of the window has moved to. And if you went back five years and told us that that would happen, I don't think anybody would have believed it. But this process that we are experiencing is a part of that. And the the hard part is if you find this Overton window moving past you and you are now on its left edge, you are going to be experiencing some fire. You are going to be experiencing some heat. You are going to be experiencing some threats, and that's going to start with light um, relational persecution that may extend, like we saw during the COVID crisis, uh, of losing your job because you're unwilling to succumb to the tyranny and overreach of the government and the um, the, pharma- the pharmaceutical industrial complex. So there's some cost, um, not to your person, your body, or your life, but there's some costs. But that is going to continue in our generation to increasingly bring about heat. And for those of us who are holding a line on um, biblical values, and I don't say traditional values because t- tradition means very little. We're talking about biblical values. We're talking about the, the long-held, very clear uh, scriptural revelation of what is right and wrong, good and bad. Uh, if we hold on to that, then that Overton window is going to leave us. And as soon as it does, we're no longer just seen as backwoods country bumpkins that are holding on to old ideas, we're going to be seen as a threat, actually. And once we, once we hold on to what God says is good and what God says is evil, and the culture has transitioned that to make evil good and good evil, we become the enemy. And those with the loudest voice, and if they get a hold of other systems of power, governmental, corporate, and cultural, um, those can be weaponized against us, and we will be experiencing new levels of persecution. So I see that coming, and this was the reason why I decided to have us hang out in Daniel chapter 3, because this is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or their Hebrew names Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael experienced as exiles in Babylon. The difference is we are like a frog put in a pot of cold water, and the heat is being turned up on us gradually. They were yanked out of their life in Israel and in the city of Jerusalem and in the tribe of Judah and in the nobility of Israel's king, and they were thrown into the heat of Babylon. And this is one of the reasons I think it may have been easier for them to stand up in boldness and not eat the food of Babylon and not um, worship the gods of Babylon because of how drastic that experience was for them. Meanwhile, for us, it's, it's happening in very, very, very tiny increments. And so it's important for us to recognize when it's happening. We also need wisdom to know how to stand up against it because there's multiple layers. There's interpersonal ways. There's personal choice ways. Like some, some, some Christians are going to be tempted to participate just because it appeals to their own specific flesh. And so there's going to be an internal desire to participate, even though you know something's wrong. There's going to be the, the legal, uh, the corporate. And so when I say corporate, I mean like um, economic, like how is this going to affect your business? Are you going to take a stand and and uh, not participate in what the culture says is good? And so there's going to be all these little mini ways that we have to face the fire. And in some instances, I think that might actually be far more difficult for us than it is if all of a sudden we were forced to worship some golden idol or die. And so this is a real tricky thing for us uh, as Christians here in the 21st century. And I want us to be prepared to walk through it well. Part of that means we have to actually take into consideration what's happening around us so that we can benefit from the example given to us by our ancient Near Eastern counterparts. Let that hang for a second and a half. I don't think you can do anything else. <laughs> so um, in the sermon content, I kind of walked us through what I, what I broke out into seven scenes and we kind of went through Daniel chapter three. I'm not going to redo that on the podcast, but I just wanted to get to the part that I didn't really get to talk about in the sermon, which is what this podcast actually exists for. And we don't really harness that power of it in this series uh, so far. But um, the the passage that I skipped and didn't use was Second Corinthians five fourteen to twenty one. 
where the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, and this is the second letter to them. And so there's obviously been some transformation that's taken place since their wild behavior in the first letter. But he's getting to this missional section, and he says, for the love of Christ controls us. And so this could be the love that belongs to Christ for us, or it could be the love we have for Christ, depending on how you read that possessive in English or in Greek. But the point here is we have a new controlling factor, and that factor is the person of Jesus and a relationship that we have that is characterized by love. For the love of Christ controls us. This is, this is what motivates us to do what we do. We have to come back to this again and again and again. In a situation we face, what is going to be our controlling factor for the disciple of Jesus? It should be the love of Christ, the love that Christ has for us in the world, the love that we have for Christ in response. And so he has our complete allegiance and devotion for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And so this is just the gospel summarized and applied. Jesus died. Now all who are in him have experienced a death to self and a life to him. And he died for all, verse 15, that those who live, that's in him, new spiritual life, might no longer live for themselves what best suits me, what is oriented towards my perceived self-immediate benefit, but instead for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is a picture of his love and his power over sin and death in the grave. So concluding, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And so we don't play the us versus them, the good and the bad, the left and the right. We don't play this game anymore. We live in a very complex world with many moving parts, and we don't sort people out into these subcategories. Now, I want to pause here for a second because this is like a major tool of the culture is to do two things simultaneously, and it, it, it knocks the knees out from underneath of followers of Jesus, and, and I mean, literally lays us flat on our back as it comes to pushing back against these things. And here's what they do. Number one, there is this atom, atomistic individualism. And so every, every appeal to any type of thought process or change in behavior, the only question that's asked is, how does this affect me? How does this affect me? And this is the world we live in. Every voice is saying, how does this affect you? What about you? You deserve, you ought to have, you, 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 you. It's training us to see the fundamental principal component of society being the person. And this has never been the case. There's never been a strong, successful, flourishing society where the fundamental basic building block is the person. It's always been at least the family unit. And if not the family unit, the, the married couple. And as soon as you can push that into an individualistic building block, now you can pull people out of the things that they care about, the things that actually add value to their life. So if you are um, a husband, your highest calling is to lay down your life for your wife, to love her and to cherish her, to, um, to cultivate your relationship like a garden, the Bible says, and in the fruitfulness of your oneness with your wife, to bring forth children and to work hard and sacrifice your own wants and desires for the benefit of those children that belong to you. And in as much as you do this, you are saying no to yourself all the time, but you are experiencing the joy and happiness and fulfillment that comes from doing the thing that God made you to do as a man and a head of household and a father and a husband. And this is actually where true joy is found. But the voice of the culture is saying the exact opposite. No, you will be happier when those kids will give you a second to yourself, when that woman will stop nagging you, when you can have the car you wanted in high school, when you can go on the vacations and be the man you want to be and have more freedom. And it's all about you, 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 you. And then your immediate appetite. What is it that you want? Your time in the gym or your drive through fast food restaurant or your... I mean, you name it, whatever the, the appetites are, as many as people are diverse, but the appeal is you matter. And when you are happy, that's when you will be fulfilled. And when you are fulfilled, that's where true happiness comes from. And then real happiness is when you have a whole world filled with people who are getting exactly what they want as much of the time as possible. And that's a farce. That's completely untrue. I mean, that's essentially a recipe for anarchy and chaos. 
If everyone's trying to get what they want, what makes them happy without any consideration for the impact that has on other people, that is the essence of total societal breakdown. But that is what is presented as the underlying presupposition. And so they've, all the appeals are to your specific appetite, impulse, desire, self-perception, and what makes you your truth, your sense of uh, identity, who you align with, what it is that you want. And that's going to that's gonna be as radically different as there are people. And it's also going to change over time. It's not static. You are going to want different things at different ages and different stages and different situations. And if that becomes the benchmark for what is good, then that is the first recipe to breaking this whole system down. And that's what's being actively pushed on us. The second piece is that once you are atomized, once you are, once you are living in a world where your motives are your own individual happiness and internal sense of well-being and desire and self-perception, well, now we're going to group you into people like you. So we're going to take you out of a world where you had meaning based on your roles and connections. I am a husband. I am a father. I am an employee. I am a business owner. And those identities are connected to the things that I do that are actually very costly to myself. My commitment to my wife, my fidelity to my wife, my faithfulness, the time I spend in conversation with her, wooing her, pursuing her, cultivating our relationship, the investment of discipleship in my children and love and affection and sacrifice of my wants and desires for their highest good, my faithfulness on the job. All of those roles are attached to duties. Well, now we have to say, nope, no duties, no roles, just you. And now we're going we're gonna to put you in a category of people just like you. And so you are cisgender, white, male, patriarchal, conservative, uh, religious clergy leader. And this, these are, this is, these are your people. And then of course, then we take everybody and we sort them into their people. And then we talk about those groups of people. And then we start to compare those groups of people to each other. And because of their diversity, they're going to have disparate outcomes of both opportunity and outcome. And so there's not going to be equality and there never will be. But instead of recognizing that there never will be because we shouldn't be glumping them into those categories in the first place and because we shouldn't be defining them by their mean, uh, idealistic, individualistic desires, we're so far away from where we should have been. Well, now we can actually change the culture by saying the people in this particular group based on these characteristics are treated unfairly compared to these people in this particular group based on these characteristics. Therefore, we must change the world we live in to make the outcomes equal. And this is insane. It's insane. And it will not lead to anything real. It is not real at all. None of these things are actually true or real. But the problem is the people who have the loudest voices are not engaged with reality and or truth. But instead, they've bought into an ideology that is based in human individualism and that uses these categorical comparisons to manipulate people's concept of both liberation and equality and fairness and goodness. And then systems are changed so that these grouped people who share um, only identifying factors that are based in internal desires, we're now changing the whole world to accommodate them out of the sense of equality or fairness. And this is just the most unbiblical thing you could possibly think to do. And so the scriptures talk about this. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. So we are not going to do this. We are not going to make the good and the bad, the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the male and the female. We're not going to identify people by all of their um, characteristics. And we're certainly not going to group them by their characteristics and, and compare them and, and um, oppose them to one another. So we used to do this. This is the way all of us are wired. And even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So we used to bring Jesus into our judgment. We used to say, this is the way the world is. This is how I experience it. And therefore, since Jesus says these things and did this thing, he is this kind of person. And so usually you find a manipulatable Jesus who can become a savior of your own making and you can fit him right into your system. And that goes on a lot. But now, because of who he is and who we've encountered him to be, he becomes the benchmark that gives us our definitions for everything else. And so a man is what Jesus as a man is. A woman is who Jesus as a woman is. A marriage is what Jesus as a marriage is. A life is what Jesus as a life is. A society is what Jesus as a society is. Flourishing is what Jesus as flourishing is. He is the source of our definitions. And therefore, if anyone... Anyone in any of those categories who perceives themselves in any particular way, no holds barred. 
is in Christ. If you make that move from out of Christ to in Christ by faith, you become a new creation. And this is where the power and the purpose exists. This is where in the fire you are alive. You are preserved because you are joined not just by Jesus in the fire, but with Jesus. And so you are made new. Everything that you used to be a part of has passed away. This is what this is the thing that hurts me so badly on the inside about these this identity politics that happens in our society is that you are not your sexual appetite. You are not the color of your skin. You are not the genitals between your legs. You are not the abuse you endured. You are not what other people say you are. You are not any of these categories. You are who God says you are. And no matter what you were, God will make you into what you ought to be. In Christ, you are made new. This is the good news of the gospel. It's transformative. But you have to receive it. You actually have to believe it. You have to actually be able to look at the world and go, you are talking nonsense. And all of these things, and and this is where I'll get on a little rabbit trail, all of these things are nothing more than control mechanisms. None of this stuff is true, and the people who espouse it don't believe it for the most part. Some people are caught up in it. Some people genuinely think it's true, and so they talk about it as though it's real. But when we lay our head on the pillow at night, this stuff does not line up. It does not make sense. It does not land us where we hope to be. Why is it that our world has become more and more and more this way, pursuing happiness as atomistic individualism and self-perception and sexual orientation and appetite and desire, and all that's happened is our drug-addicted rates have gone through the roof and our suicidal rates have gone through the roof and our unhappiness is reported to go through the roof. Our children are becoming less whole and less happy and more uh, plagued with all sorts of um, mental problems and disorders and hopelessness. If this is really where true happiness is, why is our world falling apart in front of us? Why? I'm telling you, the hope is in being made new. And there is nothing that you can't alter, transform, and walk in that will lead to your human flourishing and the goodness of society and the purposes of God than joining yourself by faith to Christ and becoming a new creation. And when this happens, the old is passed away. It does not hold you. It does not own you. It does not define you. Behold, the new has come. Now, all this is from God. This is a miracle. And he did this through Christ who reconciled us to himself. And then he gave us the ministry, the service, the outreach, the self-sacrificing calling of reconciliation to then see a world filled with people caught up in these traps and lies. And instead of devaluing them by their activity, behavior, and self-perception, we value them and seek to reconcile them to God. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. We are in an age where the most powerful work that's happening is not that of the, of the loudest voices. It's not that of the progressive left. It is not that of George Soros. It is not that of MAGA extremists. We live in a world where the most powerful moving force is the reconciling love of God. My question is, Have you aligned your life with that particular force? I promise you, when you see yourself as a minister of reconciliation, you will begin to encounter the transformative power of God's kingdom. When you reach out to a person who is not like you and you love them despite what they say about you, how they treat you, what their choices are, how they identify themselves, how they present themselves, what they look like, talk like, sound like, act like, and you show them love and live the truth of Jesus in front of them with joy and peace and hope and love and self-sacrifice, and you invite them, you actually implore them to come to know God the way that you know him, that is where the power of God comes alive and souls are transformed, spirits are renewed, hearts are transplanted, and minds are made new. This is where you will begin to see what the most important current of power in our world actually is. It's always been there. The call for the church is to recognize that we have a purpose, and that is to reveal the nature and character of God through the way we live our lives, and to invite, to minister to, to reconcile, to implore others to come and experience the transforming power of God. He's the one that does it, and we are sent out to be a part of this activity. Now, he's reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. None of the things I've done wrong, I will give an account for. This is why we talked about the names of these men. Daniel, God is my judge. 
That means not, what anybody else says about me does not matter. What God says about me matters. And so I know, I know uh, that God is not holding my trespasses against me. Not because of me, because of Christ. And I know that he's entrusted to me this message of reconciliation. And so my life is one that's meant to be extending this love and grace and mercy and this message of truth to everyone, regardless of what ideology they're caught up in. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. And so when we do this activity, God speaks, God moves. And here's the activity. This, is, this should be in quotations. There's no, there's no punctuation marks in Greek. And so here we just get it in English. But this is, the, this is the, the cell. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Memorize that. Memorize that. Put it in your own words. But this should be our disposition towards all the people who do not know Jesus yet. I'm imploring you because Christ loves you and on his behalf, because I'm his hands and feet and his voice, come and be reconciled to God, be made whole. Come to discover the God who made you and loves you and has a purpose for you. Come to be made new and all those old things go away. And then there's a summary statement in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that, and here's the union with Christ peace, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a transformative relationship. It is based in history. It is based in the activity of God, the faithfulness of God, what Christ has done, what happened on the cross. And so now through this mystical union by faith in Christ, we are being transformed into the righteousness of God and we are revelators of the righteousness of God. And so this is where you will find the boldness to say, nope, You'll find the wisdom and the boldness. You'll find the wisdom to go, I can tell the difference between good and bad here. I can see the value between what you are trying to say this word means and what it actually is. I can see the, the game here that you're playing. I can see the push that you're making. I can see the way you're trying to manipulate and control. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to experience the wisdom from God that I need to be able to see things the way they truly are. And so this is where the wisdom comes from. But this is also where the motive comes from, the impulse we are being made righteous, we are being transformed, and we are revealing to the world what God is like. Now, one little caveat on this, and then I'll get to our questions. The caveat here is that there's always a gap between the righteousness of God that is imputed to us through faith in Christ and the righteousness of God that is worked out in our lives. There's a gap there. And so hypocrisy is when you pretend there isn't. Hypocrisy is when you say, no gap, I'm going to pretend like I am 100% perfect all the time. So there's that. Um, licentiousness or uh, antinomianism, nominal Christianity, is when you say it doesn't matter, and you say, "Well, it is what it is. I'm, you know, I'm thus and no more, and sinner saved by grace." And there's the gap, and just is. Both of those are not okay. Those one's a cop out, and the other one's fake. But what God's calling us into is to, in humility, recognize the gap, and through the practices of confession, repentance, dependent transformation to every single day be working to close that gap. And if you are firm in the fact that you're accepted, made righteous in Christ, and confident in the fact that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, then the part of your life that is still being conformed to the image of Christ can happen in public without shame and with vulnerability through the acts of confession, repentance, and change and transformation. And so I'm inviting everybody. I'm not saying you're perfect. I'm not perfect. But this is what God has called us into. So I'd hope to get to some of that in the sermon, and obviously I didn't have the time to do that. And so the fire is there. God is with you in it. He doesn't promise that you will escape it, but he never will leave you alone in it. And so we see the, the power of faith in the fire. We see the deliverance of God. Uh, we see the outcome of faithfulness. And so you may run the risk of losing everything, but in the end, it's faithfulness to God that results in your promotion and in um, your calling into this ministry of reconciliation. We didn't really have that many questions this week, but I did get a great email from Rebecca. Thanks for staying engaged, Rebecca. I've gotten something from you just about every week. And I just love the way that you are connecting the sermons on Sunday to your lived experience and the reading that you're doing and the thoughts that you're having questions are just, just epic. So that's meant a lot to me. Uh, so thanks for doing that. Um, in her email, she communicates a little bit about encountering this experience through the COVID quote unquote vaccine uh, dilemma as being a medical professional, which I really appreciated that. 
And then there was the question about um, the focus in Daniel chapter three on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and like asking, where was Daniel in this story? And then the other question was, why is it that in Daniel, we're told Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar, and we're told that Azariah, Hananiah, Mishael, there's our, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in reverse order. Um, why is it then that the text referred to the three boys as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but refers to Daniel as Daniel? Uh, so their, their names are kind of inverted in terms of usage. I looked this up because I, I thought the same thing, but I never bothered to look it up. And I read a few different positions. Really, nobody knows. Uh, it's not clear. Part of it, some people just say like Daniel's the central character. And so the book has his name. And so he, he, his name is more just more frequently used as his Hebrew name. And there's just no meaning to it whatsoever. Um, others would say that this is a compilation issue. And so like many ancient texts, these different stories were recorded and sat by themselves for a while. And then after a while, they were compiled. It's not like somebody from memory sat down and wrote all these things in one sitting. And so the names and the usage of the names represented um, where in the timeline these things took place. And so that's a possibility, but I, I don't know. that there, there isn't a ton of textual evidence to that end. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure, but uh, there they were. I don't, I don't know that, that there's a super great answer to that, but um, I do love the fact that these names had distinct meanings and that the meanings of the names are actually quite inspiring. So I tried to convey that on Sunday. We're going to get into some of the other minor prophets um, next week, but I think this was a nice thorough conversation uh, for the topic at hand, not necessarily for Daniel. Um, we, we could deep dive on Daniel. Oh, man, we could do podcast after podcast after podcast. I was, I was super geeking out in our first service about the use of Hebrew and Aramaic in Daniel, because, you know, the Bible's written in Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament, but there are some passages that are in Aramaic, and the most important, and I should say longest, not necessarily most important, the longest sections here in Daniel, and so there's some really cool in, uh, insights to be had on the use of the Aramaic and why it's there and the structure of the book and how it's laid out, the mirroring and stuff, but you can catch a lot of that if you just watch the Bible Project Daniel Overview video. So if you're interested in that, Check it out. It'll give you a little bit of an insight. Um, that's all we got for this week. Um, some exciting stuff happening in the life of Christ Church. So if you are following us in real time, I'd uh, love for you to be at church on Sunday. It's going to be uh, a big a big Sunday uh, for us to look to see what God's doing and evaluate the future of our church. So come on out. We'd love to see you then. Thank you guys so much for following, and we will check back in with you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.